0: I'm Lindsay Luttrell. Welcome to the second episode of Table Five. I want to start this podcast with a big, big, big thank you. I have been completely overwhelmed and humbled by all the love and the feedback on the first episode. I'm excited that it's finally out and that y'all enjoyed my conversation with Antonia as much as I did. So thank you all for listening. You know my next guest from her season six win on Food Network Star judging and competing on many culinary competitions, and maybe from her uplifting Instagram post. She's a wife, a mother, a cookbook author, a television personality, and so much more. In the four years I've known her, she's always been such an inspiration to me. In fact, she shares her role in the start of Table 5 in this next episode. We cover it all, from her first career in journalism to postpartum depression to finding her way through her culinary career today. So please enjoy the wonderful Artie Sequeira. Um, I'm going to go in my bedroom so I can call that chef. Okay. I'm going to come back out. But if
1: you need anything, just let me know.
0: Okay. So I'll just clap and say table five, Artie. Yeah. And then I'll just go. You guys do your thing. Okay, cool. Okay. I'm going to do my clap. Okay. Table five, Artie. <laughs> Woohoo! <laughs> I'm so excited. Uh, seriously, thank you so much for doing this because I always have such a easy and like natural and fun organic time talking to you that I was just like, if I'm going to do a podcast, I mean, I have to do it with Artie because it'll just well, be so and easy. I feel
1: very invested in this podcast because I feel like I'm part of the birth story, whether or not I'm, I am. No, you are. I'm going to put myself into the birth story of this podcast. And um, so just forever for posterity's sake, you will welcome everybody. This was all <laughs> my doing, <laughs> but
0: like Truly. I mean, I remember telling you and I had never told anyone outside of my best friend and Aww. I was talking with you under that tree at that yep. house in the Valley somewhere. And you were like, what's up? I can tell something's up. And I was like, I just feel like, you know, I have all these things I want to do. Um, but yeah, this was, I mean, I remember that conversation with you. Cause you were the one who was like, you said to me, just ask. We would love to do it. I'm like, why would y'all want to do a podcast for me? And you're like, just ask. Anyone would love to do it. We love you. We think you'd be great. We like talking to you. You should just try it. And I was like, oh, okay. Maybe I should just try it. What a great, what a
1: novel idea, Artie. I know. Sometimes you need someone to give you this permission that you didn't know that you were waiting on, you know? And so, and I know I have, I crave that constantly. And so- Um, yeah, I'm just so happy that you, that you're finally doing this thing and not putting it off. It's very Mm -hmm. easy to put things off. Oh, I've been putting, I have the Instagram handle for three years now.
0: (laughs) Like I was thinking like baby steps, maybe if I secure the Instagram handle, I'll, it'll keep haunting me long enough that I'm like, I'm going to go ask one of these people
1: to do my damn podcast. I know, I know. But then you finally do just have to jump off the diving board. Totally. And you have. Yeah. yeah. One of the things I remember, you know, so this is my second career. I was a journalist was. and a producer <laughs> and, um, in the, there was a wilderness period between that career ending and this career beginning. And in that wilderness period, uh, my husband and I made friends with these two women, Karen and Elena. And, um, we formed, we sort of knew each other through improv. My husband was doing improv and I was yeah. like the sweet cheerleader wife that came to every
0: totally.
1: single, single show. Um, and then eventually did improv too. And we formed, they were doing it and we formed this accountability group and we would meet every Friday, I think it was, or every Saturday, I can't remember. And we had, we were so cute. We had matching notebooks and calendars.
0: Oh my god. And
1: um we used, I think it was like loosely based on like a Stephen Covey thing. And but the power of it was just having someone that held you accountable every week. So sure. you know, there were four parts of your life, like career, relationship, I don't know what else. And obviously those are the only two that matter to me. And um, you had mm-hmm. goals for each of those. And so, you know, when you didn't do the thing that you said you were going to do and you kept doing that maybe two, three weeks in a row, we would call each other on it. And we all took turns crying. Every week, it was someone else's turn to cry and talk about what was, you know, keeping them or keeping ourselves from jumping off the diving board, you know, and so I really think so often it's not, you don't need a system. There's a bunch of systems and they're somewhat helpful, but really you need a person. Yeah, and that's like such a powerful message for me because I really believe and love being in community with people. I think it's really, it's, it it's the whole point. You and I have always
0: kind of had those conversations where we've, I feel like we've related on this a lot, that kind of yeah. inability sometimes to listen to our gut and to follow what we want to be doing and to like not listen to our insecurities and really go with, yeah, go with that and yeah i think that's why you were a part of the birth story because hearing it no. from you and knowing that we have related so much on things like that in the past yeah like hearing you be like you you need to go for it and you saying to me like this is your time and you should try it and nothing's worse than not trying really did nothing's work. worse
1: than not trying a hundred percent you know meanwhile these are things that i still need to hear myself oh yeah i think there's sort of this this really this false narrative one of many but there's this false narrative out there about um you know that that once you jump off the diving board to keep the metaphor going that you then just you know you sort of maybe plunge to the bo- bottom but then you rise up and then you're just pirouetting That's through the great. swimsuit oh ah. Yeah. Like everything just goes your way. Um, And that's, I think, because, you know, so many movies, they sort of end at that point. Sure. Rather than, you know, continuing to roll and see that there's ups and downs and you're going to plunge down to the bottom again, probably within a couple of minutes, by the way, you know, it's just, it's a constant battle of like, I don't think I know how to do this. No, you don't No, Does that, does that mean I have to stop, you know? And right. I'm still working that out. I'm right. still working that out. Well, and I feel like with you, like you
0: mentioned, you have, you mentioned you, this is your second career as we, as I know. Um, So you've kind of had to plunge in and out of different things already. What, tell me about like your first career. I mean, you obviously wanted to be a reporter. I remember you saying, I wanted to report like the cold, hard truth kind of stuff. Like, yeah. tell me about that.
1: Well, and I, I completely relate to that. Like, feeling like i had this very unique calling as a sort of 11 year old growing up in dubai and then turning 18 and coming to university and meeting an entire university full of people who had the same dream right <laughs> i was like well i'm no different or better than i'm different but i'm no better than any of them so this i should just quit yeah very easy to look at that and want to quit yeah yeah um yeah so i grew up in dubai went to an english school which is why i have this accent but i am indian 100% Um, probably with a little Portuguese in there because of the part (laughs) of India that I'm from. And, um, so during the first Gulf war, I think I was 11 and up till then the news in Dubai was just news wires, you know, that there was a presenter and they would rip it off the the wire and, and read it. And there was a little bit of enterprise reporting going on, but not that much because it's controlled. Right. And so, um, this was the first time that I had seen r- real reporting, people sort of going to the front lines of what was happening and telling us what was happening. And um, I found it so exciting. I remember watching Larry King, eating my breakfast, watching Larry King and watching Christian Amanpour and just suddenly these were my heroes. I just thought that, the, and I don't know why that is. When I was really little I had two games that I would play. One was cooking show host. Oh, ironic. I know. And the other was like reporter where I would hold the newspaper and I would read to an imaginary camera. So something in me always was into this idea of um revealing things to people. Hey, I found out that this is true. I want you to know about it. Hey, I found out this is true. You know, hey, I found out that if you use this kind of yeast, it will cause this to rise. You know, like there's something that God has put in my heart that like makes me want to do that. Yeah. So yeah, so that's all I ever thought I wanted to do was to be a journalist because to be a cook and that kind of thing was not like a prestige kind of career for a traditional Indian family. But journalist is just outside the bracket. Right, you're like, it's on the cusp of really hitting home. (laughs) Right, right. I mean, because basically there are some very rich journalists out there. So, you know, I think in our community, they were like, okay, you can provide for people doing that. Go ahead. So then I came to the States when I was 18 and my dad um, very generously um, put me through university. I went to Medill, uh, Northwestern Medill School of Journalism. And I just, you know, all I, I just, I worked hard at it um, and got internships every summer. I really took on that identity of a journalist, you know, like this is who I am. My name is Artie, I'm a journalist. I'm also Indian. I'm, you know what I mean? That was the right, primary right. identity. And then one of the internships I got was at CNN so that when it came close to graduating, they called me and they said, we have an opening. Would you like to work here at the Bureau in Chicago? And I was like, are you freaking kidding me? Yes. So I went straight out of school to working and um, I just thought, well, that wasn't so hard. <laughs> I had this one dream and it's kind of happening. I mean, I wanted to be a reporter, not a producer, but I thought that's okay. I'll just work my way up. Yeah.
0: You find your way. It's shocking to me when people have jobs right out of college. Like I had a couple of friends who had jobs right out of college. And I always found that to be just like so exciting and shocking. So I mean, I had to move out here and like didn't know a soul. And I'm like, I guess I'll be a PA somewhere, you know, whatever. But that's so cool. I can't imagine getting the call being like, we have a position for you and you should get it and take it.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was really cool, and it was very um, validating. Like, oh, okay, for, validating for me and my parents, by the way, because I go, I'm home sure, for a while they were like in the kitchen, you know. Um, so it was really, it was really great, and I, I really loved my time at CNN, and I loved the people, and um, I was on a pretty clear career path. It probably wasn't leading to reporter. Mm -hmm. But it was leading to executive producer Probably in in a few years I was already on that path And I I cherished it Right And then (laughs) The story always sounds so weird Then I got married Wah wah (laughs) (laughs) My husband's always like Don't put the period after that sentence (laughs) Because it sounds so bad
0: Poor Brendan I imagine he's going to come Busting through that door in a second To like tell his side
1: (laughs) Wait a minute finger up in the air. So Brendan is my um, college sweetheart. We met on like the f- second day of new student week at Northwestern. We'd been together ever since.
0: And can't he had moved it. to LA
1: because he's an actor. And so I stayed in Chicago. Then I moved to New York and I was working and working. And it just got to the point where I was like, babe, like if this is the, if this is a, a ring situation, then you're going to make it a ring situation. So, <clears throat> so he did. And I moved to LA and that's kind of when like the bottom fell out because I couldn't find work. And I knew I was really good at what I did. I had excellent, excellent, like, what's the word? Recommendations. Oh, so you moved to LA hoping to
0: continue on with like the journalism and report, oh, okay.
1: Yeah, but what I found is that I couldn't find work and then a little part of me was kind of okay with it. Oh. And I was like, well, now this is not okay. And it's also really troubling. And I think this is the problem with having an identity buried in, for me, anything other than child of God. Because once that journalism thing was taken away from me, then I was like, who the heck am I? And what is my value? Right? I had no sense of like, well, why Why am I valuable to anybody? Yeah. You know? And I remember for it, was, it went on for years that I would wake up in the morning and... And I wasn't suicidal, but I definitely was like, "Lord, why did you wake me up again?" I not This is why would you? Because there's oh I have there's nothing for me to do, and um, so I would wake up. My husband had a job in production. He would take the one car that we owned. Also, I was not a great driver having mm. lived in Chicago and New York. And it was a stick shift. Oh gosh, you were really set up to be a pedestrian. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I would just watch TV and I'd get all the way to the end of the view. And then I'd go, I'd, you know, make as much coffee as I wanted. Cause I was like, okay, this is my one luxury. And I get to the end of the view and I was like, well, if I start watching soap operas, it's over. It's really down. You know? Meaning like, I'll just, I will, I know my personality. I, I'm slightly addictive, in that way. And um, and luckily in those days, we didn't have phones to distract us. And so I would watch Food Network and I would watch PBS cooking shows and I would thumb through cookbooks. It had always been a latent passion. It's a huge part of you know our family's entertainment is to eat and cook and talk about what we're gonna eat and how good was that meal and how bad was that yeah. meal. And, So I, that I would walk, can you believe it? I would walk 20 minutes to Albertsons, get my my groceries. People thought I was nuts. Walk down Venice Boulevard, go get my groceries. Across the street was a restaurant supply store called Surface. I would go get pots and pans that I needed. Carry, schlep, all of that back to my apartment.
0: I mean, a 20 minute (laughs) walk in LA just seems so different than it does anywhere else.
1: Yeah. It's, it's an eternity. It really is. And it wasn't like I was listening to a podcast or anything. You're just right. listening to traffic, you know, but, um, but it was good for me. And I just cooked and cooked. And the kitchen was a place where I had a sense of control because I could take the chaos of ingredients. I could look at the instruction manual right. and I could turn those ingredients into something that was nourishing and helpful and beautiful sometimes. And that was kind of the start of this whole thing for me.
0: But I imagine, I mean, growing up, I mean, coming from an Indian family, growing up in Dubai, like, do you, did your food journey start in this moment or did it start as a child? Like, did your, did your parents cook? I imagine you were always around the table oh, having yeah. amazing Indian
1: food. Yeah. I mean, I have very, a pretty classic Indian family in that, like my mom will cook and my dad will watch her and supervise.
0: It's <laughs> amazing.
1: Well, you're not cutting that small enough. Yeah. Is that ready? You know, um he- that's
0: like classic Southern
1: for me. My dad was always on the grill, my mom was making the sides. Yes, that th- we did that too, you know. But my dad, so my on my dad's side, the the sort of urban legend about my f- grandfather, Rafael Sequera, is that he left home when he was 16 because the food was so bad. <laughs> that's hilarious. And my dad's always been really opinionated about food on that side where they're farmers. We still have a farm in India. My mom um, comes from a long line of incredible cooks. My grandmother, Lucia, um, was an incredible cook. And so it was always such a huge part of how we marked life, you know? And it was also a way for us to remember who we were because here we are immigrants in Dubai And, you know, we're from like the smallest of small communities. We are Catholics in a Hindu Muslim country. We were Indians who had moved to Dubai. I was an Indian kid with this sort of massive identity, now going to a British school in Dubai, trying to sort that out. And then my mom is also trying to bridge that gap when my friends came over, bridging the gap between like smelly Indian food, Right. You know, and what what my British, Australian, Italian, all over friends were used to eating too. So um, the fact that, India, like traditional Indian food was a huge part of our lives, meant that when we went back to India, even if we didn't speak the language, even if we hadn't seen our relatives for a really long time, once we gathered around the table, boom, you're in. Yeah. I recognize that dish. I recognize that dish. Oh, you know, my ground makes that a little different than my mom does. You know? Right. That kind of stuff. It it gave us, it's like a passport into back into your family and back into your culture. So it was huge for us.
0: I have so many questions about like, so one, you said something about having your family as a farm that was in India. Yeah. And you still have it. Did you grow up like around the farm or like anywhere near, like when you were in India, did you? Yeah. We would go back
1: um, for Christmas and stuff and go, you know, we'd stay at the farm. It's still my dad's favorite place on earth. Oh, and there were rice patties. They were all kind of dried out by that point, but um, we still had, you know, cows and chickens and vegetables growing and fruit growing. And, um, it still is to this day when my dad comes to visit, the two places I always take him to are farmer's markets and, um, any kind of fish market, because those are, you know, those are just his happy places. So, so this idea of eating fresh vegetables and fresh, just fresh, good food was always a huge part of our lives.
0: That's so interesting. I love that you grew up around it from a very young age, like farm life.
1: Yeah. We would grow things in the backyard too. We had a papaya tree, we had lemongrass, we had mint, we had curry leaf. That is one. If you drive past a house, there's a curry leaf bush, you know, there's an Indian living there. You know it, right? You know it, you know? And so those things were always growing. in my, my, my dad still grows. I mean, they're still growing like fenugreek leaves and things on their little balcony. They- Are they still in Dubai? No, they moved back to India like about 10 years ago. Why did y'all ever move to Dubai? Well, so my dad got a business degree and, um, you know, we, I think he sort of saw the writing on the, the wall that um, he could a- only progress so far. Mm-hmm. In India, and there are lots of reasons for that. You know, sure. I think one of them, especially back then, I think the caste system was much more um, effective right. <laughs> in keeping keeping people like us like out of it. Um, so I think that may have been part of the reason. I'm not totally sure, but also there was a, just a great opportunity in Dubai where he could work, and the salary was really generous and the way of life was not the same, but it was just an opportunity to start fresh. And so um my mom was a big part of that too. She was actually working in Doha before I think he was moved had started working in Dubai. So oh cool. Um, yeah. So there there was always this mindset of like whatever it takes for us to move this generation ahead, mm-hmm. we're gonna do it. If it means leaving India behind Bye. <laughs> you know, and I, that is the, that is the Indian diaspora mindset, you know, right. always has been. So he found this job, but he was working for, um, energizer. And, um, so they set up shop in, in Dubai, they had a tiny little apartment and then they had me and then they just kept growing and growing and growing. And it oh was great. Gosh. So were you born in India or Dubai? I was born in India. Yeah. yeah. My, my mom was actually, they were in Dubai. She was pregnant with me. I'm the firstborn, um, but back then it's hard to imagine that Dubai was not as developed as it is now, and so I think also because I was the firstborn, too, she was like, I'm gonna go back to India, right to hospitals I know where my sisters are and stuff, and um, have her. Well, she didn't know, she thought I was a boy actually, because oh, really, because I was 10
0: pounds when I was born. <laughs> Were you 10 pounds? Ten whole complete pounds. My twin sister and I were nine pounds each. (gasps) Your mother. I know. She was nine pounds and I was nine four. Oh
1: my gosh.
0: I know. But it's funny because we always joke like luteural babies come out looking three months old. So like my brother, my brother was nine, six. He was born after my twin sister and I. And then my twin sister has babies that are eight to 10 pounds. My older sister, all of her kids have been like, I think Sadie was nine something, but the two boys were 10 over 10. I mean, her late, her last baby, we call him the beast baby. Cause he's like 10, six or something
1: crazy I think I really do think some of it has to do with bone density that is just what I'm going to maintain I mean you're also very tall yes um I'm not so that that's where my theory goes to crap but I think it's bone density
0: oh I will take that to the bank because my parents so lovingly told the story our entire lives, which has nothing to do with my complex today, I promise. (laughs) But they would tell the story all the time that they used to fight over who got to hold Lauren because Lauren looked chubbier, but she was smaller than me, but chubby, like very chubby and cute, like the cutest little roly poly baby. So you would think that she would be bigger or like way more, but... They would fight over who got to hold her because I weighed so much more. My mom's like, what is just, you were just big boned, honey.
1: I'm like, um, that is not a fun story for me. No, I, there are so many stories of my parents saying, oh my gosh, our arms would hurt so much from carrying you around. They were like, you were very cute, very cute, but so heavy. (laughs) Oh
0: my gosh. So you were 10
1: pounds even? Uh, Something like that. Yeah. They do it in kilos there. So she had me in India and then recouped there, probably did like the full, like 40 days, um, traditional 40 days of recouping and then flew back. Listen to what she got to do though. Oh, I can't wait. Yeah. So just, just put this in your brain for when you have babies, Lindsay. Okay. She had me, came home from the hospital um, they hired a woman to come every day, bathe me, no, sorry, massage me, uh, bathe, some of the massages, you know, just like sort of stretching your limbs out after being all cooped up in the womb. Right. Um, some of it is ensuring that you get like not too big of a nose, <laughs> not kidding. um, And then bathe me, then swaddle me, you know, have mom feed me and then put me to sleep. Then they would massage my mom. No. Bathe her or she would bathe. And then they would swaddle her too so that her belly would go back, right? Um, And put her to sleep. And then while they were sleeping, she would go make dinner for them. Yeah. Yeah. This what? is just normal. This is just normal. Like what? what is part of the, I think the Chinese have a similar tradition, just the, a recognition that birth is a freaking battlefield and that you need a full 40 days to have, and don't even get out of bed if you don't want to, you know? I, and I'm sure like, I mean, I know you've talked openly about your
0: struggles post-birth when you had your girls, Yeah, but what would you have given to have anyone
1: provide you with such like oh my gosh. T- truly tender love and care. I know. I know. I, that was a hard thing. I think about having kids when we did, because n- not that many of our friends had children. So we were sort of doing it in a vacuum. And, um, I remember, I think when Aliyah was like two and a half or three weeks old, I got a job developing recipes for the grapefruit board. So luckily my friend was visiting from. Atlanta. And she held the baby while I'm like trying to come up with recipes. Oh I mean, I gosh. still got like the band around my belly, like the whole thing coming up with recipes and then also being like, Oh, i got to stop now. Cause I have to breastfeed. Like it was, it, that's, it's not how it's supposed to go. And did you, did you have, you had postpartum with both or with only one? No, I had postpartum depression and anxiety with both of them. The second one was a surprise, you know, cause I thought that I had I I knew enough and I had taken care of myself enough to sort of combat it. I had encapsulated my placenta. Right. Second biggest placenta she'd ever seen. Thank you very much. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I love it. I will take any and every award, Lindsay, any and every. Listen, I would wear that crown proudly. I know there should be a sash. Seriously. Um. Anyway, I tried all these things and then about a year post her birth, um, I was like, I'm, I don't think I'm okay. And so I got myself on medication again and I actually just got off it in 2020. Cause, um, I had, I felt like, okay, I think I'm okay. Um, but then we had moved from LA to Raleigh at the beginning of 2020. So I was like, I don't think I should be getting off it right then. Right. But yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that sort of those environmental community factors played a huge role. I mean, the thing about depression is, um, you know, there, there is a form of postpartum mental health issues that is hallucinatory, right? Psychosis. Right. But for depression and anxiety, at least in my experience, um, it. It preys on things that are real, you know. It just makes yeah. them feel so much bigger than they are. It's sort of like you know the flashlight behind a tiny little Lego figure. Depending sure. on how far away it is, the shadow is tiny or huge, and so it would make it feel like these things were huge. Like sure. the rest of my life was damned to looking after a baby that I didn't have any um, ability to look after. That I was doing everything wrong, you know. And so it just it was it was a very odd um, experience because I would constantly have to check what my brain was telling me against what was actually happening. And that was my husband, bless him. Brendan was there constantly just saying, Hey, nope, that's a lie. Nope. That's a lie. Nope. That's not true. You're doing this. Great. This is fine. She's fine. You know, and I I don't, if you don't have someone doing that for you,
0: I don't know. Oh, I can only imagine you go down like the spiral. Yeah. (laughs) Your hair looks great. <laughs> so speaking of your your girls, tell me names and ages of your daughters. Oh yeah.
1: So I have two girls. Um Aliyah is 8 years old. So it's just like Elijah but with a y. And Mosey well, she would want me to tell you that her name is Moses. Excuse me. Moses is 6 years old. She's mm-hmm. like so Aliyah is like the spitting image of Brendan. And Mosey is a spitting image of me, which is pretty cute.
0: I was going to say, isn't it interesting? I always wonder, I was just actually listening on the way here. I was listening to Dax Shepard's podcast that I just love and adore so much. And he had Brooke Shields on. And she was talking about her girls are now like, I think, 18 and 15. But they were talking about how interesting it is to have their daughters grow up in the same house with the same parents and the same DNA. And they be so different. So and different. one is very her husband and one is very her. And it's the opposite yeah. of what you would think because the one that's very her looks like her husband, Chris. And so I'm curious, like, are, do y'all feel
1: that way? Are they very different? Are they very much like one of you? No, actually that's probably pretty true. And I, actually how interesting that it was Brooke Shields saying it since she she was probably the first person I'd ever heard of talking about postpartum depression. Oh yeah, and she got a lot of flack for that, I remember. Yeah, so, th- so thank God for her. And there was actually another woman that I had heard on the radio years and years and years before, you know, babies were even something that happened. I was listening to Christian radio and I was under this sort of misapprehension that like you could pray anything away which is unfortunately, um, pretty prevalent in some aspects of, of Christianity. And listen, I understand how they get there, right? Like you don't, you don't just like, there's no, it's not like there's no reason or logic or even Bible passages that you can sort of look at and come to that conclusion. But I was listening to this woman and she's, she was a very, very prominent woman. Her name is Sheila Walsh. And she, um, hid her, um, depression. Mm. Um, because she felt ashamed about it until one day she was hosting a show and, um, the 500 show, whatever that's called. I don't know. Mm. Anyway, she had a, she had a breakdown on air live. So oh and all that happened is that a guest said, how are you doing Sheila? Oh and gosh. it just undid something in her and she just broke down and she had to go get herself. Like, I think she checked herself in and um, and hearing that story, she then st- started talking about yeah. like how she's so grateful for the medication that she has, that it's a gift from God and that she... Um, would never tell a diabetic not to take their insulin. So why would, you know what I mean? And so she had made all these points and it really made me think. And I went, huh, okay, that's interesting. And again, like, I just am so grateful that like God had me hear that at that time, sure. because then years and years later when I got sick and I was like, oh, I think I might need extra help here because I'm going to support groups and it's not doing anything. Right. I didn't have any of that sort of shame and failure attached to that. So yeah. thank goodness for people who speak up, dude.
0: No, seriously. And I think that it's like one of those things that still, as much as we're talking about it now, it's still very much not a huge, it's not as
1: much as we should be. I feel like. Yeah. You know? I want everyone watching, everybody involved, father, mother, siblings, aunts, uncles, to know that this is something that can happen, you know, yeah. because it really, it, if Bren hadn't said to me, Hey, something's not right with you and it's not your fault, but I think we need to get the scene to, um, if I hadn't had him saying that I would have just continued to white knuckle my way through it.
0: Wow. No, I think it's great that you are now sharing your
1: experience. So I have to redeem the time, you know, that's how I feel about it. I got to redeem the time. <music>
0: And like your path alone, it's like, you know, from CNN to LA to what am I doing with my life to you? I mean, you started Artie Party on YouTube before Food Network start, right? Correct. Yeah. A whole year yeah. before that. Yeah. Yeah. So like, tell me like you, I think you, didn't you go to like a culinary school here?
1: In yeah, LA? I did it. Well, it was a, it's like a semi-professional culinary program in LA that I walked to as well. Of course. <laughs> And my husband had gotten me that gift certificate and uh, I think it was like a three month program and you'd go in every weekend for three or four hours and they would, you know, just give you the basics. And then after that, you could using that, you could go get, you know, you could go stash somewhere. Um, So I did that and then I staged at Luke. Rest in peace. I know. So good. So good. And it was, it was such an incredible experience. Wait, what did you ask me? How did that?
0: Happen? I was saying, cause you, you went to like a, well, you're saying culinary school, but then you started Artie Party on YouTube before even yeah. your rise to fame, Artie.
1: <laughs> well, cause you know, I, you know, a friend of mine had said, why don't you make your own cooking show? And, and same Thing I was like, who am I? Like, I don't have anything to teach anybody. Who am I? And she said, well, but you know, okay. Well, I think you do, but also I just enjoy being in the kitchen with you when you cook. Like it's fun to watch you cook, but also I like talking to you. So could that not be the show? And I was like, oh, okay. So we shot one version of it. It was you know, three cameras and way too much footage. And so of course it just sat and collected dust because no one wanted to go through all of that and edit it. So one day I got irritated and I picked up this little DVX camera that we owned and I was like, okay, I'm just going to shoot something. I don't know what possessed me to do it. It was just getting fed up of waiting, I guess. Yeah. I just like put my eyeliner on and I was like, okay, we're going to make baba ganoush. Put my eyeliner on and made baba ganoush. Yeah, because, you know, I was in my 20s. That's all it took. Yeah. And then I stood there and I, you know, made baba ganoush and I got to the point where, like, I needed two hands. And right at that moment, Karen walked in, my friend Karen. And I was like, here, Karen. And I gave her the camera and I used two hands to start peeling the eggplant and stuff. And that was a birth, that was a birth of it. Oh, my God. And then God. it morphed into this, like, cooking variety show because, of course, so many of our friends are performers. And so it became an easy way to give them a platform that's the
0: party aspect.
1: Yeah, that was the party aspect. And so I did that for a year and a- around that time people said, "You know, have you heard of this show called Food Network style you should try out for it." And I was like, hell no, for the same reason I don't have anything to teach people, so this would just be an exercise in my public humiliation." You know, so someone ha- can mm-hmm. have a glass of wine and eat some popcorn scandal like and watch me be humiliated, you know. But I really felt like it really felt like a divinely orchestrated and ordered thing. Like I could not say no, I couldn't. It's a good thing you did, you know, follow your gut and
0: listen to everyone telling you to do Food Network Star because I mean, the things that you've gone on to do after that, after
1: winning that are huge. Yeah, huge, huge. And nothing that I could have probably catapulted myself to do, you know, on my own. So yeah, yeah, that was another diving board moment. I feel like this is a book, Lindsay, the diving board moment. Uh, are you, hey, listen, it's
0: this. I can be a part of your birth story of the diving board. <laughs> no, it's so ironic, oh, too, because this
1: tooth here, this tooth here is false because I jumped off this, into the shallow end of the pool, not off a diving board into the deep end, just off the side and like, bonk, oh, my God. Right. <laughs>
0: oh, my God. You can't even tell that that's a fake tooth. I know. I know. It's really, he did a really good job. Yeah. I'm about to say, I mean, I feel like usually you can, someone says that and you're like, you can tell. Yeah. Oh, that, oh, that one's fake. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> So tell me, I mean, obviously I met you through you coming on to these shows and being a, you know, a celebrity judge and competing sometimes. And, you know, I, I, I love that, obviously. But tell me, like, what since Food Network Star, you did have your own show. again. I mean, Artie Party had, like, a whole, like, revamp. Tell me about, like, yeah. how this all happened to land you here.
1: Oh, so, yes, yeah, so I did Food Network Star, and I won, thank goodness. It was – there were a lot of tears, a lot of tears, to the point where I remember when – one day it was still airing and I was walking into Food Network and Anne Burrell walked by me and she was like, hey, Artie Puddy," And I was like, oh, hi. Oh my gosh, you know who I am. And she said, you're doing so good, but you got to stop with the crying. You got to stop. And I was like, well, it's already in the can, Anne, but um, uh, noted.
0: Yeah. You're like, I'll, I'll remember that for next time.
1: Yeah. I just, I really was at the, I was at the very edge of my everything of my comfort, of my sanity, of everything. I, I, you know, at least that version of the reality show was really, really tough. I mean, not only are you sequestered and you're away from your family, I didn't have children at that point, but there were people who did, you know, and you're away from your family. They take your phone. You don't have computers. You don't have TV. You don't even, they not even radio.
0: Oh my gosh. For Food Network star. Yeah. I don't think I knew that it was that, um, like locked up like that.
1: Yeah. I don't think they did. I think they got a little easier as Mm -hmm. it went on, but for that season, yeah, it was really strict. Wow. So you start to lose your mind because then like, you know, these people, these 10 other 11 people that you're with, they become your reality and your judges become your judges. It's like, it feels like life and death, you know? And so it's kind of like this very weird psychology experiment. And uh I I didn't I did not like that experiment. And it <laughs> was like very clear. <laughs> <laughs> I could not handle it. So I did that and then I uh, did my own cooking show and then I did a couple of travel pilots and um then I got pregnant with a liar and um oh fun fact, I was pregnant when I won Food Network Star and didn't even know it. Oh my
0: gosh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how you found out how long after you wrapped Food Network Star, did you find out?
1: Well, unfortunately what happened was, um, I won Food Network Star. I met with the production team like the next day and they said, okay, so we need 24 recipes and we're going to need them in a month because we're going to start shooting. And I was like, okay. And thank goodness I'd been blogging. So I'd already been writing recipes and then came up with a few more. And, and of course had the, all of arty party to pull on, you know, so all of those things came back. And then, um, we shot, we started shooting on the very last day of shooting. I remember I woke up very, very early in the morning in a lot of pain and I had a miscarriage and I had no idea that mm. I was pregnant. And I was calling Bren back in LA. It was like two in the morning for him and just sort of breathing through it. And he had no idea what was going on. So that was, that was a very odd way to, <laughs> to finish shooting the first season. And to find out you're pregnant for the first time.
0: It was like very, losing yeah. it.
1: Oh gosh. It was hard. It was hard, but, um, but it was also kind of comforting because I didn't know if I could get pregnant. So that I was like, okay, well, at least I know I can get pregnant. I just got to hold on to it now, you know? So then, um, so after, um, so when I got pregnant with a liar, I got my cookbook deal, (laughs) So that was tough because I didn't know I was, again, I just never believed that I could get pregnant. So I didn't know I was pregnant. And then everything that I tried to make tasted disgusting. Every spi- every time I opened my spice box, I was like, oh, I smell so bad. Like, oh my oh, no. gosh, I'm just, I, I'm just destined to fail this too. Like what's going to happen? Cause you know, like having the cooking show, felt like such again, like the end of the movie, everything's going to turn out great. Right. But then it got canceled, you know, and no one talks to you about how to handle that and how to deal with that and the reality of that. And, um, so it was really, it, I felt, you know, my imposter syndrome like was at a, at an 11.
0: Oh, I'm sure. It's like, you're on this high and then it's like, oh no, we're going to take you right back down. And now you got to climb up to a high again to feel like you're doing something right. And now we're going to take you right back
1: down. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's always like, now I just try to hold on to things as loosely as possible. Yeah. You know, we've seen people like, and I've experienced it, like really feeling like at the top of their game and then boom, it's all over, you know? Sure. So, um, so yeah, I mean, so I did the cookbook and then um, Guy called me to start judging on grocery games. And again, I was like, who am I to judge these people? You know, (laughs) (laughs) but I'm gonna take it. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing that I try to tell people. They're like, oh gosh, I would just love to have your career. And I'm like, I agree with you. I would, I love it too. And I understand, but you do have to understand that like, at least for me, the weirdness of this life is that I'm constantly doing things that I feel like I am not cut out to do.
0: Right. It's a mental mind game that just like yeah. you cannot, it's like uh, on the hamster wheel. You're constantly chasing something and feeling like you don't deserve it.
1: Yeah. I'm like, why am I here? Why am I here? This doesn't work. So, um, it is, that's a weird, it's a, it's a weird place to be, to, con- to have, and maybe it creates mental toughness. I'm not sure. Or it creates sort of a divine surrender, radical, sure. radical surrender. Cause you're like, well, okay, I guess I'm just going to walk through this ring of fire now. And then this ring of fire now, you know, it's
0: hard to imagine like, oh, I have the skill set, and the, you know, I'm supposed right. to be here telling other people how to do this. I understand that's probably hard, but you you don't sound like you don't know what you're doing. I know, isn't that funny? I,
1: I think that I do. And then I'll, I'll watch it and I'm like, oh, wow, they edited that really well. Gosh, I need to go find that person and <laughs> say thank you. Um, well, you're welcome. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> thank you so much, Lindsay. And you know, you have interviewed Antonia. Antonia is, has become like one of my best friends yeah. on the planet. And whether she likes it or not tone and um she has had so many conversations with me i mean i think even that season where we were doing delivery and you were my producer i was just having a really hard time with it you know and, and uh, she had to sort of she still makes fun of me cuz i was like you just don't understand like you know every one of these things it makes me you know i have to go and do this dog and pony show and and i I'm just constantly thinking about like, how can I provide for my children and make sure that they have socks and shoes? And she was like, are you kidding me?
0: (laughs) I can get a little high strung. She's like, I'm going to try and talk you off this ledge, but you sound crazy.
1: I know. So every time something good happens, you know, like there have been, I just released this recipe journal with um, Dayspring, which is, a, you know, it's was like my first product, which was very exciting. Very cool. She was, you know, she'll text me and say, well, looks like the girls are going to have some socks and shoes next year. <laughs> That's incredible. That's so Antonia and I love it. So Antonia, I know.
0: Oh my gosh. But yeah. But when it comes to competing, I feel like every time I've been with you and you're about to compete, you're like a nervous wreck. What do you love and not love about like competition cooking?
1: (laughs) Hmm. Um, I, well, I think first of all, there's something in me that really believes in prerequisites and training and I'm trying to let that go. I think, you know, I think it's a very American mindset to me to think, Sure. I'll, I, I can do it. I'll figure it out. I got it. I got the brains. You know, how hard can it be? That is a very sort of maverick American mindset. Whereas I come from this Indian mindset, which is you do this, you put your nose down, you work really hard. You go to this school, you get this training and then you get this job and then you do well there. And then you move to the next level and then you die and you're done, you know? <laughs> right and so to then be in this career where i have a little bit of training but not that much and i'm sitting i mean sitting alongside like someone like alex guanichelli who trained with you know and (laughs) yeah that makes no sense to me Lindsay. so that is really intimidating yeah it can be a little kind of be a lot so i think with uh competing that's constantly running through my head. Well, I don't have the training to be here. If this was a competition for all of us to do a two minute news package, right? I'd kick your butts, all, all five of you or whatever, you know, for sure. but that's how I feel. I feel like I'm at this disadvantage, but so that's one mindset thing that I need to change. Um, and I, and then I think, But then the thing that I do love about it, especially on grocery games is that there is fun and goofiness attached to it all. You know what I mean? It's as much about um, playing around with your fellow contestants and guy and the judges as it is about the food. You know what I mean? And there are enough shows where the food is very important Mm -hmm sometimes precious, you know what I mean? And we can get really, really caught up in that. And the thing that I've always appreciated about doing grocery games is it it also brings back the joy of the cooking. Sure. So I do, I appreciate that. Um, and I appreciate that in competition, you never know what you can do until you're kind of working off adrenaline and off fight or flight. And so that part of your brain or my brain that always second guesses, my decisions cannot work. It's, it's on mute because I don't have time for it. Yeah. So it's, it's almost like having, you know, 25 minutes or whatever being in someone else's body. Oh yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, when you're at home, obviously, I mean, I know that you just moved to Raleigh and designed your dream kitchen. I'm assuming you take your precious time in there, A, because it's so lovely, but B, you don't have a a timer necessarily. I mean, do you love like just going in there and workshopping things or is it quick because of the girls?
1: Um, It depends on the evening. You know, I've been trying... I've been trying, frankly, honestly, I've been trying to enjoy cooking again. Um, It's funny because I think a lot of people write to people like us and say, you know, I don't love to cook or, you know, yeah, I don't know how to cook. How do I get that? And I'm like, well, you know, just follow a recipe. It's fine. You don't, you don't have to love it to do it, you know, but I think to write recipes, you do have to kind of be in love with it. And I I think I have gotten to this point that I hate, and I don't even want to really say it out loud, where my passion became my job. And so I'm feeling some of the passion dry out a little bit. And... That's fair. Yeah. I mean, listen, I... I'm just being super transparent cause I don't know how to be anything else. Um, it's really hard right now. Like, even though I have this amazing kitchen and I have everything I could possibly need. And, um, and frankly, at the moment, I mean, we all have a lot of time, <laughs> don't we though? Yeah. And so, um, I just find that I think I've put too much pressure on myself that everything that I cook needs to be new and inventive and perfect. And there's just so many recipes out there. I mean, my Instagram feed is full of new and different recipes or recipes that really aren't even that new. Another baked spaghetti recipe, you know what I mean? Um, But it just feels like, again, how can I compete with this many voices? in the atmosphere doing this. And so um, I'm trying to figure out a way to bring the joy back into cooking. And I was talking to a friend of mine and he said, well, what do you do for joy and restoration that's not cooking? And I said, well, nothing. (laughs) He was like, well, maybe you need to pick something up again. You know? Yeah. So I started my crochet project again. (laughs) Cool. I think if I can find, and maybe this is a this is something someone needs to hear that's listening, that like um I think the problem the the not the problem, but the danger of the follow your dreams mindset is that that thing that is your joy will eventually become your work. Right. And maybe you won't have this experience, but a lot of people that I talk to have this experience that you lose the joy of it because it becomes this have to not get to and you can change the way you talk about it as much as you want but but for me you know that's not enough so I need to find something else that feels like you know um it's restorative to me and then maybe the maybe the joy in cooking will come back I love that
0: do you cook? Um, like, do the girls like to cook? Like, are you, show, do they enjoy it? Do they want to get their hands in there? Or are they like, just make this and let's eat?
1: Oh, no, no, no. They they are very opinionated about food. And um will <laughs> Mosey will walk in and be like, hey, mom, what's din? And I was like, you can't even say dinner. You can't even say dinner. And here I am wasting away behind the stove. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, but but uh, latest update is that my eight-year-old Elia has started making scrambled eggs on her own cute. in the mornings, and um, and I can see I can see it because I showed her one time uh, eight days ago, and now every single morning she wants to make scrambled eggs. That is so cute. So I can see it happening. That sort of like, oh wow, I I can make that. Yeah. And it's good. And my sister loves it. And she says that she loves it better than my mama's. Um, you're like, that's fun. Yeah, that's not true, right? But um, but it's cool. So it's cool to watch her starting to play around in the kitchen. And I wanted her to get more comfortable with the stove because she was sort of using the microwave as her cooking right. implement. I was like, okay, let's get some fire in here. Um, so yeah, it's definitely, and that that's helpful too, For me to re to experience that again and remember oh i remember when i started making eggs and how obsessed i was with making eggs
0: oh yeah i'm just curious like what do you miss the most about la i imagine it would have to be something with the market
1: i think i miss what i miss about the la farmer's market is the diversity of things that people are growing I think because it is such a huge market and there's so much competition and there are so many chefs coming and they're attracted to the newest, greatest, whatever. There's just always like a purple Brussels sprout or a pink lemon or, you know, cherimoya or all these things that you're not used to seeing. I miss that for sure about the farmer's market. Um, And I think, and it's the same sort of along the same lines, I miss the diversity of food options available in LA. I mean, the fact that I could say, you know what, I've never had, um, gosh, I've never had Laotian food and I could go and find a place, you know, that was authentic. Right. Um, And And delicious. Yeah, and delicious and really start to understand what the food's about. I miss dim sum terribly. Oh Mm -hmm. my gosh. Yeah, I miss a lot of those things. The upside is that I- cook more. Um, I'm buying more cookbooks and looking through them. And, um, so that's all, that's all good. I think. And then I'm going to, um, I really want to get into smoking meat. Wow. Very, yeah, no, you moved out of LA. (laughs) punctuation matters (laughs) very North Carolina of you very yes well I figured I'm I'm in the place you know and I've we already have like a couple of a favorite barbecue places and um and one of them actually does barbecue classes and so um I'm gonna take a barbecue class and just really I want to learn I'm here I'm in the you know One of the birthplaces. So um I really wanna I I think and that might spark another part of my brain to open up and then maybe the joy will come back in. Because isn't I don't have to learn, right? I'm not gonna smoke meat on on in competition. Right. Uh, It's just for the joy of learning.
0: Well, and that's so fun, yeah, to find something new and like I love like you know, immersing myself into something new anyway. So you can, why not? Yeah, yeah. So why did y'all leave LA for North Carolina?
1: Well, I mean, so the girls were little, um, we have my, my father-in-law and his wife and my, their daughter is my sister-in-law. Yep. Sorry. Um, they live there. Um, but I think, but out here in Raleigh, we have a lot of family and life is a little slower and life is a lot more affordable. Mm -hmm. And so to put all those things together in the balance, for me, it felt like living in LA was becoming so stressful. Um, it just, you know, everything can be humming along and I, we couldn't afford for a misstep. We couldn't afford, you know, me getting sick or both of us getting sick and then having the girls, you know, jumping around on us while we were sick, which happened so many times. Um, and we wanted to buy a house and sort of we, I think for me, I wanted a place where the girls would have more of the sort of quintessential American childhood. Mm-hmm. Now, listen, I, I mean, I still watch movies and they're set in L.A. and I shed many a tear you know, when someone's yeah. walking down Venice Boulevard or not uh, the Venice boardwalk or going to the beach or walking through Silver Lake. And I still miss those things desperately.
0: Sure. But,
1: um, but um, I do feel my bandwidth opening up here because it's not occupied by sort of mindless annoying things like it taking 45 minutes to take my girls to school oh you know God. what I mean and 45 minutes to get back home and you know those sorts of things it's just I I needed that yeah. mental bandwidth and I think and I also think it's been good for the girls to sort of grow up in a place where let's just take it down a notch yeah. <laughs> The great awakening that's happened, I think, over the past couple of years is us realizing that all those things that we held so dear, that was so important, mm-hmm. maybe weren't so important after all. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I think it put things in sharp focus for me. I mean, at least especially for the first few months where we knew no one except for, you know, my in-laws, we would go for walks. (laughs) That was like the highlight of the day was going for a walk. For sure. Seeing, you know, if we could spot a bald eagle or something like that. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And that's, by the way, that's 20 points if you, that's a point system. Oh, I love it. Um, But- you know, I think the other thing that I've realized for sure is that we are not built to get as much stimulus as we're getting. So we're not meant to know as much as we know about other people's lives constantly. Mm -hmm. You know, we're not meant to have this much information swirling around in our brain. Like we're just not built for it. No. And so when things, when I moved here and some of those other sort of physical demands went away, like drive times and traffic and, you know, access sort of simplified. I think I felt so much stress leave my brain and my body. And, um, listen, there's still, there's still FOMO. I still have a ton of FOMO. I'm still subscribed to like Eater LA's newsletter. And so I'm always reading about new restaurants opening and stuff. like that. I love that. that. But, um, but, yeah, i and I don't know if this is it for us, but, um, for now, it is i I have felt like it is a cocoon. It has been a sweet, safe cocoon for us. And at some point, we're going to break through it. I sure. just just don't know where we're yeah. you know, what's on the other side of it. I don't know if what you are, but we realize that we're both extroverts. And so, lockdowns suck for us like it's it's a real like i just started therapy last week it's a real issue oh yeah for, i know a lot of people who are introverts were like woohoo it's finally the way i want it and i was like you could have had this the whole time you know right. but now i literally cannot get fed the same way because i can't see people i can't meet new people i can't be around people like this I, it it can cause depression. I'm the
0: same way. I'm an, I'm definitely an extrovert, but I do enjoy my alone time, but I was always in charge of that. I could say no to something and be like, I I really just need to be by myself right now. Or I could be like, I'm gonna go home for a second, you know, recoup and then I'll meet y'all out. But now, you know, or then it was, oh no, I'm stuck in this house by myself. And what am I supposed to do with my own thoughts just sitting here? I've watched everything there is to watch. I've read every book I own.
1: <laughs> I love that meme that said, I finished Netflix. Yes, <laughs> truly. Whereas by the way, all Bren and I wanted to do was finish Netflix. Oh, right. Because, You're like, entertaining. Yeah. yeah, there's children around and stuff. I also think, you know, for people that are in the food industry, who are in the production industry, I mean, these are very sort of all hands on deck, work as a team kind of, um, uh, vocations. And so to have that taken away is also really hard. You know, I thought about all the chefs and line cooks and dishwashers and, you know, they're used to working together as a team and suddenly they're out on their butts on their own, trying to figure out what to do next. That's, that's, it's really, it's really, really, really challenging.
0: Oh, yeah. I know it's interesting to hear everyone's perspective from from that time because it is different for everyone. It hits hard for everyone and no one knew no one had gone through this before. So everyone was trying to figure out their own way. Right.
1: Such a weird time. It is a really weird time. But but also, you know, we we got to take the things we got to hold on to the things that were revealed to us during that time and take them into whatever's coming next, you know. Right. And so for me that is um I'm trying to continue walking because it is um, really important. I was just listening to a podcast yesterday about how um, getting out into nature is really important because it reminds you of your actual size, which is rather small yeah. in the grand scheme of things. You know, yeah. so it puts all of your troubles in perspective. You know, me worrying about socks and shoes. Right. Okay, let me just put this in perspective for a minute. So I am trying to do that, and I'm trying to. Um, really invest in the girls and like sit down and be with them. Even if it's things I don't really care about, like I don't care about playing dolls, but okay, I will sit here. You know, those sorts of things just sort of slow it down. Just it's okay.
0: Well, and I feel like your, um, your new, you mentioned it earlier, your new recipe book and journal is kind of a version of that. I mean, it's, it's faith-based, right? It's yeah. And then also kind of, tell me about it.
1: So it's a recipe. It's a it's a recipe journal that I'm doing with DaySpring. DaySpring is the Christian arm of Hallmark, and so every um, chapter in there starts with a blessing that's taken from scripture, and every page has scripture on it too. Um, because to me, food and breaking bread and gathering around a table is a glimpse of heaven. I love that. It's how God describes it, right? He says, "I." Jesus says, I will not drink wine until you come and join the feast with me. Um, which I was like, that wine is going to be good. That's and I'm not like so even bad. a wine person. Yeah, I'm like a Manhattan person. I'm like, are you still having Manhattans though? <laughs> now, is this full bar or? <laughs> <laughs> is it house only? Um, so yeah, so the the journal is an opportunity for us to um, write, stop and write down those family recipes, those things that you kind of take for granted that you feel like you'll always have, but you may not. And I know that firsthand because my grandmother, Lucia, was such an amazing cook, but it was all in her head. And then unfortunately, when she died early, my mom was, I think in her twenties and the oldest of her siblings, um, all those recipes and all that wisdom and all those stories, they went with her. And so, my mom and her siblings, you know, are desperate for any piece of their mother. They were very, very, very connected to her. Oh, I bet. Um, And so if, if she had written her recipes down, that would have helped them so much in multiple ways, not just in the practical, but in that emotional connection. And it would have been lovely for us too. We have one letter that she wrote to my mom and oh i gosh. look at her handwriting i look at even in that letter there was a donut recipe in there you know the the to have that little touch of her is really i have her her name is my middle name
0: oh i so, love that
1: yeah so you know, to have that connection would have been really wonderful. And it would have been wonderful for my kids also then to see, this is your great grandmother. This is where you come from. Yeah. So that's all the thinking behind the fa- the recipe journal, you know, because she didn't, because Lucia didn't leave one, my mom started one because my mom started one. I started one when I was 10 and I still have it.
0: Oh my gosh. Of course you did.
1: Yeah. And so, and this, now this family recipe journal is also an opportunity for me to write things down and then hand it down to my girls when it's time. And then they, and I'll leave pages empty so that they can add recipes and then they'll give it to their kids. And it's just this very simple, but powerful way, pen and paper to sort of thrust your hand through time and space and say, I don't know you yet. But I love you enough that I'm writing this down so that you will have it.
0: Absolutely. I need to get one for my mom. It is comical that we, uh, so I have th- two sisters, so there's three of us and Thanksgiving and Christmas, we all spent away from, was my first Christmas away from my family. And so I'm like, well, I have to make certain things. And my mom's rum cake or at Thanksgiving, it's her, her crock pot mac and cheese and it's her t- coconut chest pie that was handed down from her. And I'll be like, can you send me the recipe for the coconut chess? And it's like, what is this? I have to call every step because what she has said, and she'll go, I don't know, Lindsay, I eyeball it. I'm like, okay, well, I don't have your eyeballs. I'm in Los Angeles. So if you could maybe guess what this is or, you know, the rum cake, I'm like, It says brown sugar, light or dark. It says rum, light or dark. And she'll go, she'll be like, you know, it's this. And I feel so bad because our group chat with my sisters and my mom is constantly, what does this mean in the recipe? And my mom, for those two holidays, if she thought she was going to have reprieve from all the cooking because none of us were there, she was wrong. (laughs) (laughs) We were all confused. I'm like, it's handwritten on a piece like a post-it practically. And she'll take a picture of it. And I'm like, "Uh,
1: I don't know what I'm looking at. Yes, I know. I know. But then, but I also think that those, that time spent trying to piece that recipe together is really precious time too. Oh, yeah. Um, you know what I mean? Where you're not necessarily like talking about anything else, you know? No. But you have, I did the same thing when I went back to India and I brought measuring spoons and measuring cups with me. And so when she just went with, you know, put her fingers into the spice box and like took a pinch of turmeric and was about to throw it in, I, captured it in the palm of my hand and then put it in a measuring spoon so I could write down how much it was. And I was like, just so you know, when you say, oh, that's one teaspoon, it's a half teaspoon, just so we're clear. Okay. That is amazing. But it was helpful because now, you know, when she writes her recipes, she still has those measuring spoons and measuring cups. She will write it using those. So I at least have some approximation, you know, Um, that we're using, that we're talking about the same amount of things. But it's, it's so, I think it's so important. Did you ever feel
0: pressure that you were like the face and the representation of Indian
1: cuisine? Oh, for... yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. And that was really tough because I remember when I first started on Food Network Star, I told them, I said, listen, I am not the be all and end all of Indian cooking. I don't consider my I mean, I didn't grow up only eating Indian food. I don't make only Indian food. I don't think of myself as only Indian. I'm Indian, Middle Eastern, British, American, Californian. You know, I have all of these different parts going on in me and that's showing up in how I cook you know, I make fish tacos with like a cumin, garlic, mint crema. Like that's how I cook, you know? And, um, I think that that was a little hard for them to, um, figure out because it felt like it was skipping a step and i understand that right like if I was a cooking show host in England, mm-hmm. i think that that would make more sense because there's already a familiarity with Indian cooking and right. Indian flavors and so when i do like a little improvisation on it they they can go oh yeah that makes sense mm-hmm. just like over here when someone makes like a different kind of you know a different like i had a, a recipe that was like a mango pulled pork. So, someone could go, Oh, I see how this is like a regular pulled pork, and then this is how it's different. Sure. So, I did feel a lot of pressure to be an ambassador for Indian flavors and Indian cooking. And the Indian community is much like your mother, very protective and very opinionated, and definitely super opinionated about what's authentic and what's not, you know? Right. And so, I would sometimes get messages about that, and I would just say, that's, they would say, that's not how my mom makes it. And I would have to say, this is how my mom makes it. Take it up with her, right? This is her name. <laughs> Go find her and you try and pull up that thread. <laughs> yeah. I was like, good luck to you having an argument with my mom about food. All right. <laughs> um, so I definitely, definitely felt that. And I feel, um, you know, there really wasn't, I think Padma had had a show on Food Network before I had years and years before I had, um, but it. I don't think, and I could be wrong, I don't think that it was only Indian food that she was doing. Right, And um, so I did feel like, okay, I, I can't mess this up because if I mess this up. It's not just me messing up. It's me messing up on behalf of an entire community of people. Right. And so, yeah, when the show got canceled, I definitely was like, oh, I've I've let everybody down here. I've let everybody down. And of course you didn't, but I understand that. Yeah, it, it felt... It felt rough. But, you know, um, but then, you know, the other day I I looked at my cookbook shelf and I looked at all of these incredible um cookbook authors now and food personalities, but they don't live on my shelf, but <laughs> cookbook authors that um were not around when I started, you yeah. know, and I and for a moment I was like, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna take a little bit of pride here that I was part of there was a a small group of people, and everyone made it the road a little wider for the next group of people that came, you know, came ahead absolutely. So, um, so I may not have done it perfectly, but at least I widened the road. you absolutely. know, and i I can feel good about that.
0: oh, I love that. <laughs> um, okay. I'm going to ask you one other thing about North Carolina. Tell me, who are you loving in Raleigh or in North Carolina where you've been? I'm sure you all have done like road trips and stuff locally, like restaurants, chefs, like anything that you're like, if you are here, you got to go here.
1: Yeah. Um, well, number one, I would say um, I love Prime Barbecue. Prime Barbecue is uh, just outside of like Raleigh proper. It's in Nightdale. Um, uh, the pit master's name is Chris I think that's how you say his last name. I'm sorry, Chris, if you're listening. <laughs> but um he so he is um he has Puerto Rican blood. So not only does he make like some of the finest brisket I've ever eaten, but he also makes lechon, so pulled pork with like tons of vinegar in it and really Yum. crackling skin and um they're, his, his restaurant is so beautiful. There's so much attention to detail and it's just definitely like one of my favorite places um, that we've discovered. My dream though, is to um, open up a, uh, a kitchen with a dining room and I would bring my friends who are chefs to come and cook for two nights. The first night would be for everybody, like anybody to come in pay and you eat and you taste their extraordinary food. The second night would be for line cooks only and it would be free. Cool. And it would be for them to experience food from around the country, from chefs at the very top of the game, so that then they could, as the food is presented, they can ask these chefs, well, how did you do this? How did you get this to, you know, how did you get the clams to taste like this or whatever it is? Because those are the little tiny insights that you don't get from, I don't know. You don't necessarily get from cookbooks and things you yeah. only get from standing at someone's elbow. That's why we stage, right? right? But only by standing at someone's elbow. And I don't know how many people are able to, you know, take off from their family here in North Carolina, go stage in North Carolina, in New York for a while, or stage in LA or Minneapolis or Chicago, or whatever it is, you know? So that's my dream to one day do that, to sort of lift up the community and really kind of level up the the cooking here, you know? Because there is, there's beautiful cooking here, but um, I want everybody to be able, because I think that was the thing about LA is everybody could experience truly wonderful cooking, um, no matter, you know, what your, um, whatever your financial ability was, there right. was something for you, you know? And um, And I really think there's something to the finish. Like you can have lots of great ideas, but the way you finish your food often is the difference between good food and oh, great yeah. food.
0: So obviously you've had a very interesting journey and ended up somewhere you probably didn't ever think you'd end up as far as like career location, all of that. What are you loving most about your life right now in this moment, the season of life, this chapter?
1: Um, I think that the thing that I love the most is when people say uh, one of two things. Either they say, oh my gosh, I had no idea that a sweet potato could taste this good. You know, after I say, you need to cook it at 300 degrees and no hotter, people. Um, <laughs> turn your oven on, it's gonna be on for an hour and a half, um, but then come back to me. So I love when I can share something that I've discovered with someone and it can it can change their world, you know? And then the other thing is when someone says, um, hey, I, was having a really rough day. And then I watched your stories and I feel better. And that doesn't always happen. I could also ruin someone's day, I'm sure. But I doubt it, but, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, that that helps me. I mean, I, I don't take it lightly when I see someone and they freak out and they're like, what are you doing here? And they're so happy. And then they say, you've just made my day. I'm like, well, hmm. you just made mine. You know what I mean? Especially context rewind the podcast to when I was saying, I would wake up in the morning and say, Lord, what is your purpose? Why did you wake me up today? I have no value and no worth. And so for me to now be able to, to have an impact on people and lift their spirits and maybe remind them that God is, hasn't forgotten about them, you know, um, that is, uh, just the honor of honors and the privilege, privilege of privileges to be an instrument of his love on honor.
0: I love that. You've just mentioned obviously wanting to open up like the dining room and the, in the kitchen for pop-ups and all of that. But what else are you like, what's next? What are you striving for? What is still on the to-do list or do you even know?
1: Um, I, I have a couple of things, you know, like I think I'm, uh, I'm working on a cookbook devotional. That's my next big thing, Um, which is very intimidating because it's two books in one. Why did I do that to myself, Lindsay?
0: (laughs) Reach high, reach for the stars.
1: So, so dumb. Um, No, I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be great. And it's going to be as much (laughs) um, a tool of healing to me as I hope it will be to other people. I'm sure. Um, Yeah. um, I'm not entirely sure. I mean, there are stories, for me, what I have always enjoyed is using the platform that I've been given to boost other people. So like I do a thing on Instagram called rising tide Tuesday, you know, where okay. there are people who have sent me products or books or whatever, or they're just doing things that I think are awesome and neat. I want everybody to know about it. And so in the same way, you know, I feel like, um, there are a lot of people who have mixed up identities like I do this sort of third culture kid identity. Um, and this idea of using food to help them make sense of who they are is a story that I think we need to tell. And it doesn't necessarily, it's not just a racial identity, right? I mean, you can feel identities in lots of different ways. Um, so I would love to sort of create a space to tell their stories and watch them cook and learn from them. You know, I miss learning from people. You know, I, I, I that's why I treasure competing in a way, because it's one right. of the few times I can see my friends cook and be like, wait, how'd do you do that? You know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And you know, cooking at guy's house is the same thing. Like, wait, you did what? So, um, I, I mean, I guess the short answer is that I don't truly know, and I've never truly known. I used to have a really strong dream to be Christian Amanpour and go travel the world and tell stories and uh, hold truth to power and shine a light in the darkness and, you know, every other banner. Right. Um, and I still, that still burns in me. And so I am still holding out for um, an opportunity for me to bring those two parts of my brain together, to bring those two games that I played as a child together, news presenter and cooking show host, and kind of put them together and sort of just show people what else is out there. Yeah. You know what I mean?
0: Well, I feel like you're definitely on your way. because you kind of do that? I mean, you, like you're saying with your Instagram, I mean, you do always post very inspirational, uplifting. You're very honest on there I mean, I've seen you talk about your bad days and your good days. So I think that you're,
1: you're on the way, sister. I'm, I'm hoping. Yeah. I, you know, it's, there are people who have very strong ideas about what they want to do. And, um, and I don't, and then I, I always saw that as a failure on my part that I didn't, I didn't have dreams or thoughts or whatever. Um, but I'm 43, (laughs) And it's, it's okay. Like it's kind of worked for me thus far. And in a way it keeps me very open to saying yes yeah. to anything that crosses my path, because I don't, it's, you know, I know, I don't know what it'll lead to. And thus far um, God has been very sweet to me and has opened up a lot of opportunities for me. I would never have imagined for myself. Oh, yeah. So um, yeah. So I, I guess that for now my, my plan is just to say yes. I dated a guy too before who would say, why do you
0: always have to know the end goal? Like you don't have to know the end goal. Just if it's still working for you each day, like keep going with each day. And those have been, it's been a lesson I've really been trying to implement. Like, I don't need to know the end goal. I just need to know that I want it. Like earlier when you were like to anyone listening and in my head, I was, I, I thought right. to myself, I am so happy. She thinks someone's listening <laughs> to my podcast. <laughs>
1: They're going to listen. They're going to listen. Well, and the thing that I've realized is like the, you know, um, what I think should happen is so often a much smaller idea than what is actually possible. For sure. And the other day I was watching my, my friend had shot a video of the sun in the sky and it was surrounded by clouds and the clouds were about to come and cover the sun. And there was a very small little, um, little rainbow in the corner of it. You know what I mean? Like a Because mm-hmm. it had flashed on the, what's it called? You know what I'm talking about. I know
0: what you're talking about.
1: It's not a real rainbow, but it's just happening in the camera's lens. Right. So I was like, oh no, don't, no, 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 please don't let the clouds come over now because it's going to ruin the entire shot. This is so bad. It's going to ruin the message and everything. I don't know why I think so deeply about these things <laughs> the clouds, but no, the clouds kept going and they covered the sun and guess what happened? That little rainbow, suddenly shone around the entire sun and made this video like the most beautiful, breathtaking thing I'd ever seen. I love that. And I was like, now, isn't that a lesson to me that I was like, this is going to ruin it. And it's it's perfect the way it is, or it can never be better than this. And yes, it could. It could be miles and miles and miles better. And
0: that is why you think so deep, because you got a lesson from this video you saw.
1: (laughs) I'm looking for lessons everywhere, Lindsay. I love that. I I have a lot of
0: questions. I love that. Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, before I let you go, I'm going to do a quick fire five. Ooh. Okay. So drum roll, please. No, I'm kidding.
1: (laughs) I got to drink water for this one. Last
0: meal before you die.
1: Oh, uh, my mom's dal and rice with Bimbleese, which you can only get in the town that I'm from.
0: Oh, cool. That's cool. (laughs) Um, favorite city to eat your way through. Oh, um, Los
1: Angeles. It's a good one. Yeah, it's the, it's the best.
0: If you weren't in this profession, if you weren't a you know chef, you know, recipe maker, food industry, and I guess I'm going to go ahead and say, if you weren't a news reporter, dang it,
1: <laughs> what would you be? I think I'd be, um, you know what I'd be? I'd be a tour guide. I love that. I remember that was the other game I played when I was little and here on your left you see the trade center it was built in 1975 I just (laughs) okay so if you weren't this
0: you'd be a news reporter and if you weren't a news reporter you'd be a tour guide yes I
1: love that I love tour guides favorite cocktail wine or drink Um, I am purely a cocktail drinker now, by the way. The wine still gives me headaches. Oh, that's a shame. I know. Um, It's okay. There's plenty to choose from in the cocktail section. Um, A Boulevardier is my ride or die. Very, very, very boozy. Rye, Campari or Aperol and sweet vermouth. Oh, wow. So
0: good. Get it. Um, And then tell me... Tattoos question mark.
1: Um I would love them. Um, I have none. My husband has plenty. <laughs> and unfortunately, I watched the process. And so it scared me even more. But um, if I the plan is, I have two tattoo plans. This is a good question. So um one of them is to get roses and marigolds because they represent my girls. Yeah, because isn't Moses's middle name Marigold? Marigold, yeah. And Elias' middle name is Rose. Oh. Um, so I thought that that would be a good one. And Bren and I could both get them. And then the other one that I wanted to get is, it's an old symbol that I saw. Um, someone else had a tattoo of it, actually. Oh, cool. It, Cute bartender making me a boulevardier, actually. (laughs) Hey! And he had it on the inside of his arm in like brownish reddish ink. So it looked like it came from a book. And it's a lamb holding a banner. And the lamb has a halo holding a banner. And on the banner, it says IHS in his sign. And Mm -hmm. I just thought that that was such a um, beautiful... Oh, and I think he might have maybe a crown, something... Anyway, the lamb being symbolic of Jesus. And I just thought it was a beautiful um, rendition of Christ, but not in your prototypical way. Right. Where people will do a cross or a fish or a lion. And the fact that he also is a lamb to me is really powerful. You know, I it's very that. vulnerable.
0: But you don't think you'll get any?
1: Mm. I'll never say never. I'll never say never. I do. I really do want to get one. But, you know, so Brendan is very particular about these things as you could possibly imagine. And so he has a folder and in that folder on his laptop is all the tattoo artists that he has picked for every single Design that will be on his body.
0: Oh wow, that is so cool! You can't
1: mix. You can't have this design being done by a different tattoo artist. It has to be done by the guy in New York because he is really good at wings, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, okay. uh- <laughs> so I'm kind of relying on him. But yeah, I, I, I'm open to it. I'm open to it for sure. Very cool. Well,
0: Artie, I really, Lindsay, I thank my you darling. so much. Mm-hmm
1: my pleasure and my joy go.
0: I just, I love you so much. I'm so happy you came on and I'm so happy you encouraged me almost a year ago. Oh Oh my my gosh, this decision, make this step. And you are a part of the birth story. And I was going to bring that up if you didn't. So I'm glad you did. Um, but I adore you. I'm so happy to always see what's going on with you.
1: Yes. I am so happy to be one of your maiden voyages here on table five yes thank you so much love you Mwah.
0: love you bye I hope you liked my conversation with Artie you can see more of her in the upcoming season of guys grocery games and you can find her family recipe journal that we spoke about at dayspring.com to keep up with Artie follow her over on instagram at artie party Picks, and on twitter at artie party And you can find her on Facebook at Artie Seguera. Just like my first episode, I want to share different restaurants I come across and things I enjoy. So recently I had my favorite tacos, Marisco's Jalisco. And if you live in LA and have not had these tacos, this is a serious run, don't walk situation. The late, great Jonathan Gold um, named this taco truck his favorite and it is so good. So they're famous for this like crispy fried shrimp taco and they assemble it themselves. If you go to the food truck and sit outside there, they assemble it themselves, which I think is the move, but there is a crispy hard shell and then there's shrimp and potato inside of this crispy hard shell pocket of a taco. And it's so good. And then there's like fresh tomatoes and onions, like a like a, um, pico de gallo on top with avocado, just fresh sliced avocado. And it's just so good. You can do a hot sauce. I do not because I can't handle heat, but you can do like a hot salsa or dip it into just more pico de gallo. It is the best taco I think I've maybe ever had. So sorry, non-Angelino's for this hot tip. And you're welcome to all the Angelino's because if you want a good taco, Look up Marisco's Jalisco on Instagram and find out where they are. There's a couple locations and get yourself some crispy shrimp tacos. Thank you for listening. And please feel free to rate and review the podcast wherever you listen to yours. I love seeing what y'all think of Table 5. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Table5Pod so you can stay in the know.